was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 18. This is the entertaining podcast where we're eager to explore the enthralling exploits and eloquently examine the electrifying escapades of the esteemed English emissary, James Bond, 007. A very warm welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us in our journey across the entire Bond franchise. We never forget the first rule of mass media, giving the people what they want, and we hope you've been enjoying the reviews so far. Before we get started in this week's episode, just the usual reminder to join us over on social media. Likes and follows on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are gratefully received. Uh, Just remember, we're under the shorter handle of More Cubby on Twitter. If you have time, some official feedback in the form of a podcast review on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast would be lovely as well. Five stars, never expected, but always appreciated. Also, if you'd like to ask us a question or submit a discussion topic, do get in touch with the show. Our email address is rogermorscubbyhole at gmail.com, and you can feature in a future Q branch, i.e. the questions branch segment. Now, in our previous episode, we discussed Bond number 17, Goldeneye, Pierce Brosnan's action-packed introduction to the Bond universe. We said that director Martin Campbell was able to bring the character into the modern era while still maintaining elements of the series uh, that had made it so successful in the past. And on top of all that, there were some truly memorable performances from a star-studded cast. Of course, the GoldenEye name lives on if you're rich enough to stay in Ian Fleming's former Jamaican estate, or for most of us, it lives on in the form of retro gaming. So was the next film in the series another genuine article? Let's find out as we scrutinize Bond 18, Tomorrow Never Dies. Bringing you cool, objective coverage is the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who wants to be a force for good in this world, fighting injustice, crushing intolerance, battling in humanity, and most importantly, talking about cars. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, thank you very much, Martin. And there'll be plenty to talk about this week um, on the cars and gadgets front. As we always say every week, just a really quick um, few shout-outs again to people that have been getting in contact with us on Facebook and Twitter. So just really quickly, just thanks to Vishy Bandu, Peter Eli, Sarah El Aj, Wendy Ashall, and Rob Tucker on Facebook. And just really quickly on Twitter as well, to Billy's Bond Art, to the Republic of Isthmus, to Rushford Reprised, to at Dr. Kaufman One, Steve T, The Baron, Jan Mulder, at Paul Casella Two, at Time to Bond, and a really, really quick special mention to Problem Eliminator on Twitter as well. He's basically done a video montage of every single Roger Moore sort of old man grown. We, we as a team have, have often mentioned the very entertaining um, Roger Moore-esque groans that appear in the films. So if you do get the chance, do try and seek, seek that one out. Bill, having seen this video, what is your absolute favourite Roger Moore old man groan? If you had to go for just one as the ultimate Roger Moore old man groan, which would it be? Well, this is tricky because the trouble is, obviously, with a view to a kill, there's a lot of similar ones. So you can't, that kind of all blends into one, really. I'd still make it some of the early ones in kind of the man with the golden gun, particularly in the early scenes where, um, you know, he's in the fight sequence. It's not quite silly yet, but it's, it's still kind of entertaining, I, I'd say. Yeah, I think in terms of the classic uh, octopusy, a view to a kill old man groan, it's got to be when he's going over the weather vane and it's in uh, his gentleman's area. But yeah, I also like the groaning in The Man with the Golden Gun, particularly the one he lets out when he's trapped knick-knack in the suitcase and it's a bit too heavy for him. I can breathe! Yeah, on the weather vane one, it's kind of made by the twanging noise as well of the weather vane. (laughs) It has to go hand-in-hand with the groan. 
Okay, and secondly, it's the man who is an outstanding pistol marksman. Take his word for it, yeah. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very well, thank you, Martin. I've just remembered uh, you have a particular fondness of uh, Dr. Kaufman, uh, which uh, we've talked about back in the day, and we'll do so again uh, during the show. So looking forward to getting to him. I've just been thinking a bit more about GoldenEye, because uh, Jack Wade, of course, is, is returning, and they never really explain what happened to the BMW that Bond is given in GoldenEye, and which he quite noticeably never uses in GoldenEye. He just kind of gives it to Wade. Uh, in Cuba, and then it's never seen again. Do we do we know actually what's happened to this at all? Like, has Wade just sort of nicked it and pretended it's been destroyed, and he's just now swanning around everywhere in loud shirts in that BMW? Yeah, do you reckon he just sort of frequents sort of nightclubs and bars on his weekends, just in his fancy BMW, and he sort of shows off to his pals? Is that is that his now uh, his new weekend hobby? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, he does seem to be taking the business of being a CIA agent a lot more lightly in this one than he was even in GoldenEye. So maybe it's because he's been hitting up the Miami Strip in this car and in these crazy T-shirts. And of course, if anyone says or does anything to him, then he says, yeah, but behind these headlights, there's a couple of Stinger missiles. I'll take you out, boy. I think I'd take a stag do with Lighter and Sharky any day over Jack Wade. Maybe Wade and Leiter did know each other, though. Maybe they, they're all CIA comrades, and so maybe Wade was actually on the stag do. He just, for whatever reason, maybe a, an operation came up. He just wasn't at the wedding. That'd be interesting to, to picture Wade on that do with them. I think the only slight confusing issue would be the fact that um, Joe Don Baker, having played Whitaker in The Living Daylights, to then come back as Wade in the next film might have been a bit confusing. I, am, I imagine it's if you've seen The Hangover. I think Jack Wade would have very much been the Zach Galifianakis of that pairing, like taking everyone to places they don't want to go, spiking all of their drinks, and then they all wake up in some random grotty Miami hotel with like a shark in the bathtub or something. And then they're all turning to Sharky. Oh, you better deal with this. Your name's Sharky. Maybe that's why Jack Wade wasn't at the wedding. Maybe he was such a liability on the stag do that uh, Lighter just fell out with him in the meantime. <laughs> Or he got arrested and was in a prison, in like a Las Vegas jail somewhere. Jack Wade is getting more airtime than he does in the bloody film. <laughs> Let's get on with the, the plot synopsis. Let's go over to Adam and Ellen. What happens in this one? Thank you very much, Martin. So, Tomorrow Never Dies, the 18th James Bond film and the first made without Albert Arkaby Broccoli, who sadly passed away between Goldeneye and this film. The film is dedicated to his memory. Directed by Roger Spotswood, it's Pierce Brosnan's second James Bond film, and it's written by Bruce Feierstein, alongside many other writers who returns having scripted Goldeneye. The film was released in December 1997. That's nine years after Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in the action classic Tappin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Tomorrow Never Dies was made on a budget of $110 million. That's double the budget of Goldeneye and it goes on to make $333 million, which is just shy of GoldenEye's eventual total. It's also the only Pierce Brosnan Bond film which failed to debut at the top of the global box office. That's because it was kept from the number one spot by a small James Cameron film called Titanic. So to find out if this film is similarly Titanic, here's Alan Partridge. Pierce Brosnan's back down the gun barrel. Bang, blood dribbles down. Bond gate crashes an outdoor shooter fair, punches a smoker in the face, downs a jet with an ejector seat, backseat driver, and avoids a nuclear meltdown with some dodgy machine gun blasting. Roll titles. A young Gerard Butler and his crew get sunk near China by a stealth boat belonging to bloody mental media mogul Robert Maxwell. Sorry, Rupert Murdoch. Sorry, Elliot Carver. There's no news. Like bad news. After a Danish oral lesson at Oxford, Her Majesty Dame Judi Dench sends Bond off to crack on with Carver's missus. Pamper her information. And Q gives him an ugly BMW dressed as a butlin's redcoat. Grow up, 007. In Germany, Bond ruins Carver's swanky party, drinks a ton of vodka, gets it on with TV's Lois Lane, nicks a GPS encoder and chucks a goon into the presses. They'll print anything these days. But back at the hotel, Lois Lane's been off by comedy-accented weirdo Dr. Kaufman. I'm a professor of forensic medicine, Mr. Bond. I could shoot you from Stuttgart and still create the proper effect. Bond shoots him, then massively invalidates his remote control beam as insurance in a multi-story. 
After meeting CIA's most useless Jack Wade, who's wearing the most horrendous shirt known to man and telling ex-wife jokes, Bond Halo jumps to discover the downed British ship. He didn't even say goodbye! But he's captured alongside Chinese high-kicking super spy Wei Lin, and they escape while dry-humping on a motorbike through Saigon. After a flirty pit stop at Communist Q Branch, Bond and Weyland team up to find the stealth ship and stop Carver launching World War III to boost his ratings. Let the mayhem begin. Aboard the boat, Bond blows everything up. A British ship starring half a cast of Downton Abbey finishes it off. Carver gets minced by his own super torpedo. You forgot the first rule of mass media. Give the people what they want. Burly German Stamper gets his foot blasted off and Bond treats Wayland to his magic penis while marooned in the presumably bloody freezing South China Sea. The end. Thanks a lot, Adam and Alan. So tomorrow never dies. This one has a special place in my memories as a Bond fan growing up. I can't really remember the first Bond film that I've watched, but it was probably this one. Uh, and of course, I was fully familiar with the the characters and the plot from many hours upon hours of playing the uh, the video game. Interestingly, this one was the first Bond film since Diamonds Are Forever to be under two hours in length. Uh, I mean, Diamonds Are Forever just feels long. Uh, but here, the length really serves it quite well, I feel. There's a real punchiness to the action. There's always a sense of purpose of what's happening. I guess it's quite straightforward in that we know who the baddie is right from the beginning. Uh, then we're just following Bond along his journey to take Elliot Carver down. I believe the production was quite a chaotic mess. I think Brosnan's phrase was for this one, the script having several rewrites. And so the, uh, the plot points and the characters almost certainly don't hold up to light to moderate scrutiny, which I'm sure we'll, we'll find out. But for me, at least, it's a really thrilling entry in the series. Uh, one of my personal favorites. There is so much to like about this one, I think. But what do you reckon, Phil? Am I, am I going overboard? Feel free to shoot me down, Stemper style. What, what are your thoughts on Tomorrow Never Dies? Oh no, I adore this film. I, I totally agree, Martin. This is one of the first ones that I can kind of remember coming out in the cinema. Um, obviously, I didn't actually get the chance to see it at the time. I had to wait until it was on TV to watch it. But I can still remember that, that sort of sense of anticipation. At times, there was a little bit of tension between Terry Hatcher and Pierce Brosnan. I think but that was because of the fact that um, Terry Hatcher was pregnant at the time and, and Pierce Brosnan, I think, was critical of her arriving late at times, but then apologised when he realised what the reason was. But no, for me, I, I think this film is, is superb in terms of the way it's set up and the way it, the action plays out. For me, it kind of reminds me of, of films like The Spy Who Loved Me, you know, that Roger Moore sort of huge set pieces and, you know, real action adventures. And it's just a really great way to progress it from GoldenEye. You know, I think we waxed lyrical last time about GoldenEye and the fact that it revitalised the series. And I think with this one, it didn't need to revitalise it. I think it just needed to give Brosnan his own footprint in, in terms of how he was characterising Bond. And I think he does that really well. Yeah, I mean, mine, you're absolutely right. This was a very troubled production. Um, the the studio wanted another Bond film released very, very quickly after GoldenEye, and so the budget spiralled out of control in the race to complete it before the end of 1997. Uh, and amongst other things, it meant that they started with an unfinished script. And as a result, it is true that you look at the film and the story does lack the richness of GoldenEye, and it just doesn't feel quite as fresh. I don't think... Um, Roger Spotswood is quite the director that Martin Campbell is, so there isn't quite as much punch and flair to uh, the general direction as there is uh, in its predecessor. But I do think still this is a film that is unfairly shadowed uh, by Goldeneye because it is really great in its own right. And it was probably my favourite film growing up. Similarly to you guys, we're all of the same age and, and it's the one I was desperate to see in the cinema and couldn't and therefore couldn't wait for it to come out on video and to come on television. But I do really like this one. And I think in terms of the action set pieces, this might actually be a peak for the series. I mean, there are at least two sequences in this which are just out of this world good in terms of how they've been shot and how they've been constructed. Uh, and we should give a lot of credit to Vic Armstrong for this, who uh, was a long-term stuntman. He did the Bond films. He was Harrison Ford's stuntman on the Indiana Jones movies. But at this point, he's moved behind the camera to direct the second unit which in filmmaking terms largely directs the action sequences so that the main director doesn't have to. And I think that what he and his team helped put together in terms of the set pieces in this is, is absolutely brilliant. And I think it makes this, in its own right, a really distinctive and highly 
hugely entertaining film. I mean, Phil, you're absolutely right to compare it to The Spy Who Loved Me. It's a very similar sense of a film which is doing the Bond formula, but is doing it pretty much as good as it can be done. So, uh, yeah, we usually start with the the pre-title sequence. And this one, I feel, was probably one of the best in the whole franchise. Really entertaining, action-packed. One thing that I forgot to mention in our previous episode, GoldenEye, uh, and it also happens again here, is the advance, obviously the advance in technology allows some more maneuverability in terms of the way that the plot is structured. And here we get the MI6 people, M, and the admirable, admirable, (laughs) admiral, watching the action live on the live feed. Uh, And that happens in GoldenEye, and it happens here again. So I think that's a really nice creative way of telling the story uh, is having the action happening in one place than having the other characters talking about it in in real time, so to speak, in real time of the movie. So I think that really helps this pre-title sequence, but uh, really action-packed. Uh, what did we reckon? Yeah, I think this is a brilliant opening to the film. You know, I, I think that every Bond film, it tries to kind of increase the level on the opening sequences every time. And I think this one goes even further. You know, in GoldenEye, it was quite a a straightforward setup in many respects also you know it was there was still a lot of action but it was you know it was a gradual build-up in this one it's much more fast-paced because obviously you get that sense of tension in terms of the timing obviously you know the British military have launched the missile to try and destroy this um, military base that's got you know half the world's terrorists there and then it's only it's that great reveal as well where obviously one of the vehicles moves out of the way and you just see the two nuclear torpedoes and it's just that look of horror on the entire, you know, delegation's faces where it's, you know, they realise the mistake they've made. And then, of course, into that great fight sequence with the fighter jets, the fact that Bond is almost is being killed by the assassin in the back seat by the rear seat pilot. And again, he has to use his ingenuity to fire the rear um, ejector seat into the back of the other plane. So it's a great way that, that all builds up. And obviously there's elements of humour as well. But I, I really enjoy that opening. Yeah, I, I think we'll talk about this throughout the podcast, but in each of these really spectacular and brilliant set pieces, there's something which has been added into the narrative of the scene, which just elevates all of the action and makes it work particularly well. In the case of this, on the one hand, it's GoldenEye Mac 2. I mean, the setting and the scenario is very similar to GoldenEye. It's very snowy. We're somewhere in Russia or around Russia. Um, we, we build up to a lot of machine gunning, just as we do in GoldenEye. And then, of course, as, as Phil mentions, there's a lot of plain stunt work. But what I think elevates this one is something that Nick picked up on last week, which is the building of suspense. And this scene brilliantly intercuts with what's going on in Mission Control back in London with Colin Salmon as Robinson and, and Judy Dench as M. The scene takes quite a long time to get going. We, we sort of know something's going to happen, but we don't necessarily know what. And there's a really nice slow build of tension as, as we talk our way around who the characters are, what's going on. We don't see Bond throughout any of this. He's absent. And then when we finally get the reveal that there are two nuclear weapons there and the Navy have fired a torpedo into it, it just goes full throttle straight away. It's a really brilliant build of suspense by using that mission control. Yeah, and I think uh, that happens again later where Bond's doing the halo jump and just as he ju- as he's jumping, they realise it's in Vietnamese waters rather than uh, Chinese or international waters. People tend to make uh, last-minute observations in this film that quite handily make it more <laughs> suspenseful. Yeah, the film does keep wrong-footing you. It keeps adding in these last-minute things which you didn't quite expect or see coming, which suddenly then raises the stakes exponentially when the action happens. This scene also, very first up, is a brilliant showcase for David Arnold, who comes in, this is the first of, um, I think, five Bond films that he composes. And he is very much the modern John Barry. His music, I think, for the modern Bonds is every bit as distinctive and iconic as John Barry's is for the previous ones. Uh, And of course, he gets this job having released an album called Shaken and Stirred, the David Arnold James Bond Project which is a series of uh, all-star covers of previous uh, Bond music. And on the basis of it, of course, um, Arnold gets the proper Bond gig. And uh, this opening sequence is such a great initial showcase for just how good his music is for these modern Bonds. Yeah, I'd agree, Adam. I think it's great that it's it sort of sets up the film in terms of the way that David Arnold builds the the music, because it's it's very much distanced from what we heard in in Golden. I obviously were very critical of Eric Serra and, and the fact that you know it was kind of it was a bit disjointed in that film 
in this one, it feels much more natural and much more like it is a bond for him. You know, obviously John Barry wasn't that keen to return to compose after GoldenEye. So I think that giving David Arnold the chance was a brilliant idea. Going back, because Martin, you did also mention uh, the Halo jump sequence. Maybe we should now uh, move on to Jack Wade. He seems to have undergone a strange transformation since GoldenEye. I mean, he was kind of a jaded agent at that point, but he was at least doing the job semi-properly. In this one, he's, he's weirdly turned into a stand-up comedian and is veering weirdly close to Sheriff J.W. territory. Yeah, maybe he's the Sheriff J.W. of the 90s. Maybe that was his calling for this film. It's just sort of they brought him back just so that he could sort of mildly irritate Bond and just sort of give him daft quips that would uh, would see them through. But no, I, I think it was entertaining that they brought him back. I think it was probably best that they left it at just these two films. I think it probably would have got a bit great in having him in the world is not enough as well. I think that would have been a little bit uh, frustrating, let's say. I think in the world is not enough. Uh, Wade should actually have just been in the casino uh, losing loads of money when uh, Bond's trying to get information from Zukovsky. Yo, Jimbo! You couldn't lend me a spare $10,000, could you? I'm in a little bit of a blackjack hole. Or he could have just waded onto the balcony at the very end and interrupted him and Christmas Jones. There is a very specific problem with having Wade in the casino, though, because in that scene is where Bond uses the X-ray glasses. Do you really want to see Wade below his Hawaiian T-shirt? It can't be as bad as seeing him in the Hawaiian T-shirt, surely. No, I, I have no affection for Wade at all, really. <laughs> Although I like your pun, Adam. Wade wading in would be quite good. <laughs> that was going to be the title of his spin-off series, Wading In, The Further Adventures of CIA's Most Useless Jack Wade. So returning to, uh, to the action sequences in this film, shall we talk about the BMW chase in uh, the car park in Hamburg? This is kind of the first big car gadget sequence, I guess, uh, that we've had since certainly The Living Daylights, perhaps since The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, I think it's one of the best in the series. Did, did you guys also love this? Yeah, I adore this scene. I think there are a few entertaining facts behind this. So um, obviously the original scenes with the BMW 750 filmed in Hamburg, because of budgetary constraints and because of limited filming time, they actually had to film that whole sequence in the car park in Brent Cross Shopping Centre in London. I do adore this this sequence just because of the fact of, you know, how much action is brought into it. You know, there's a huge focus on the gadgets in the sense that Bond is very much reliant on Q to save him again. Things like the BMW badge, which spin, obviously has a spinning buzzsaw to cut the wire from the tow truck. And it's just a really great setup. You know, it's it's the first time that we ever see kind of remote control. I think that the action sequence in this bit is one of the very best of the entire series for me. So I know I love cars, but, you know, the sense of jeopardy and the sense of, you know, Bond has, you know, these tricks up his sleeve that he knows he's going to be able to get out of the situation and he can outwit the, you know, the pursuers or his attackers um, at every step. Yeah, it's kind of having a classic Bond element, isn't it? The the car chase, a really important, integral part of any Bond film, but with a slight twist with the fact that he's using it as a remote control car and he's in the backseat kind of ducking from all the other uh, bullets flying past. So yeah, I think in, in that sense, I think it's really good and similar to the, the one we'll also talk about later, the bike sequence where they're handcuffed together. Again, a great action set piece, but uh, with a slight twist to make it more exciting. But yeah, I feel in that car park, the guy with the bazooka missile, I mean, how dumb is he? Why is he firing it into the windshield that's already been broken? Yeah, but and there's that lovely little comedy moment as well when uh, Bond accidentally drives through his own studs, uh, spikes that he's released, but then he's able to find the button that reinflates his tyres and Brosnan has a lovely little chuckle in the back seat. Uh, that bit always makes me laugh. Uh, to pick up on another couple of things about the twists and the extra elements that they added to make these scenes even more exciting, on the remote control, it's another example of Bond action modernising itself because it's very heavily indebted to video games. Of course, they're much more popular at this time. But also just the choice of that parking lot. 
uh, as the setting for the action sequence. It's a confined space. It adds claustrophobia. And of course, the fact that Bond can't just drive here, but he's having to drive on a small phone screen in this incredibly tight setting. It all just kind of adds to the sense of he's having to actually drive really well. There's great driving stunts in this tight, confined area, as well as all the gadgets that are being set up, as well as all the explosions that he's triggering. So everything just builds into this brilliantly constructed and thought out sequence again. And I think it's also great the fact that Bond is able to do this with, with very little practice as well. You know, for anybody else, it would take them days, if not months, to be able to learn how to drive a car with a remote control. But with Bond, it's almost second nature. You know, you see that great, I wanted to mention this actually, the fact that great interaction, Q is sort of gently trying to move, maneuver the, the BMW from backwards and forwards. And then the next thing, just Bond just takes it over and just, you know, says, Look, give it to me, I'll show you how to drive it. So I adore that scene as well. I think it's just a great little, um, little comedy moment. Do you think the reason that Bond is immediately so good with the phone when Q isn't and he's made the thing is because Bond is secretly a massive gamer in his spare time. And the reason he's never that bothered about money is because he's a millionaire based on having won loads of esports tournaments. Well, they sort of invented about 20 years later, though. That's the, that's the only minor issue with that theory. Bond's timeless. Doesn't matter. Incidentally, has Q forgotten his false teeth in that scene when he, uh, he hands Bond the car over? Because he, he looks a little bit like he hasn't got any teeth in. He also looks very confused at points. He's almost sort of like saying, when he's obviously asking him about the insurance waiver, will we need these things. It's almost like he's not really sure what the next line will be. So I think there were suggestions in this film that Obviously, they might try and retire Desmond Llewellyn as Q. In the end, they, they left that until the next film. Yeah, I think uh, famously, Desmond Llewellyn said that he was hopeless at any kind of technology and wasn't good at the gadgets. So I feel like his personality is coming through more than the Q character in the Brosnan era. It makes you wonder, was he in the previous films? Is Sharon the tea lady, the brains behind Q branch? He can't actually do anything. Quite possibly. I mean, maybe it's because the gadgets at this point are so much more high-tech and computerized. I mean, before it was like, you know, it was kind of largely mechanical, wasn't it? You had a button onto an object and the button does a very specific thing. Here, it's like a touchpad and a little screen on a phone. You know, he, he does actually invent the world's first smartphone here. I don't know if, he's, if he ever got on to Steve Jobs uh, about this. He's probably owed quite a bit of money for the patent there. Your new telephone. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. <laughs> Look, it also includes a fingerprint scanner and a 20,000 volt security system. And this I'm particularly proud of. The remote control for your car. Tap twice. One, two. Now, draw your finger very slowly across the pad to drive the car. Well, it's surprisingly difficult to drive, but uh, with practice... Probably one of my favourite bit part characters of the entire Bond series is the uh, is Dr Kaufman, an incredible performance. I'm not sure whether he was hired in a similar way to Jaws, if you remember in Moonraker where Drex is on the phone to Henchman R.S. But uh, where is he from? I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing performance. I mean, yeah, it makes me think he's, it's a very camp German, I think. He's very much a, uh, of that ilk. He's, he's a mix between kind of General Orlov from um, Octopussy and kind of Oromov in a way in terms of that sense of slightly maniacal, bonkers, sort of hitman style. You know, is that sense of unhinged psychopathy. It's, it's amazing the way that he portrays it. Yeah, Vincent Schiavelli, who plays him, is a really great uh, and kind of underrated character actor. He starts out, I think, as uh, one of the inmates in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and he appears pretty much, you know, sporadically in loads of really great classic films in very small roles. The thing I really love about this character, actually, and it's all in the writing of it, as well as um, Schiavelli's performance, is that he hints at the really sinister tactics and the seediness that go into the tabloids getting the headlines that they want. He has, because he, he sort of suggests that he's worked with Carver a lot before. I actually don't think he's a henchman Aras, give the guy a bell, see who we get thing. I think he's a long-term associate of Carver's, because he just has odd lines like that one. I'm particularly good at the celebrity overdose, yeah. And so you can always imagine before Carver went mental with manipulating world events for his own headlines, you can see that on a smaller scale, Dr. Kaufman is the guy he's sending out there 
to literally murder celebrities to give him tabloid headlines. And so there's a really strange, sinister undercurrent of tabloid journalism. I, don't, I like the fact that his uh, his hobby is torture. Of course, he doesn't have a doctorate in that. But he doesn't seem like he's that keen on torturing. Like he's, his specific job in this one is to shoot Bond and make it look like a suicide. And it's just even more funny that he's a bit annoyed that he then has to try and get the information out of him using torture. Particularly that he's an expert in chakra torture as well. I mean, he's this very sort of smart, crisply suited man. And yet that's quite a sort of, you know, kind of spiritual way of torturing, isn't it? That might be the funniest moment in the film, actually, when they ring him up and say, oh, could, could you tell him how to get us into the car? And he just has that moment of just being morbidly embarrassed. Like he can barely bring himself to say the words. It's fantastic how he delivers that. They want me to get you... To open the car. I, just, I don't know what to say. And I do quite like that uh, the video that Kaufman was playing was uh, the news report that uh, a body had been found in Paris and uh, a man with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Of course, it was supposed to be Bond, but I like the fact that it's now Kaufman. Which then is potentially a very stranger news story when you have to reveal both the images of, on the one hand, this incredibly beautiful socialite trophy wife, and on the other, this incredibly strange-looking doctor who no one's ever heard of and have to believe that they're in some strange sexual tryst. It's very embarrassing. That hotel room um, is, is the setting for probably the two best uh, dialogue scenes in the film, this one that we've discussed with Dr. Kaufman, but previously to that, the, the liaison between Bond and Paris, which I guess we should talk about. This is a really lovely scene. And Terry Hatcher, by all accounts, wasn't very happy filming this. She was three months pregnant at the time. I think she plays the role really well, though. I think she captures the essence of that bored trophy wife, of someone who is just completely trapped in this ivory tower and who is sort of, in a sense, sold out to the wealth that it has given her. But this is a great sequence that she has when she turns up to Bond in the hotel room. I think Brosnan really rises to it here as well. Again, it goes back to what we were talking about um, last week they always try within the storylines to introduce elements which render Brosnan vulnerable as Bond. And in this, it's the fact that she was this old flame, but not just that one, but he seemed to genuinely care about. Uh, and this is the scene that really hammers that home. Uh, did, did you guys uh, feel the same way about this moment? I think it's just brilliantly handled. Yeah, I've seen, uh, I've seen other reviewers were not keen on Terry Hatcher's performance, but I really enjoyed it. I think it works. It's a small part, but I think she plays it well. And, uh, and yeah, as you say, Adam Brosnan rises to the occasion. I was quite critical of him in the serious scenes in GoldenEye. But here, I think he does it really well. So even though we're not, we're not particularly invested in the Paris character, but it's completely believable that, that she is an old flame. I think you also have to give a bit of credit to Terry Hatch as well. I believe this was her first kind of major film role. Obviously, she'd had sort of smaller parts and obviously she'd been in The, um, the Adventures of Superman. Um, so I think I think she deserves quite a lot of credit in terms of the way that she delivers the performance. I think it, it is deserving of more credit than than certain, some fans probably give it due. I think. Yeah, I think your I think your point is really great, mine. We do believe that they have this past together, and we believe in that emotional erotic connection that they had. And both of those actors managed to communicate that just in, effectively in the space of two sequences, this one and when they first meet at the party. So they don't have much to work with, but they, they just really sell that idea and they make you believe in it. And when they actually start with the physical lovemaking, it's different to what we've really seen from Bond with women before. He's always quite in control and he's almost quite clinical in terms of what he's physically doing. It's much more passionate. It's much more animalistic in this one. Did you also notice Brosnan loves a little shoulder nibble, doesn't he? Maybe Onatop had some effect on him in the previous film. Maybe that's just Brosnan. Maybe that's not Bond at all. Maybe we're just seeing a little insight into how uh, the lovely Pierce Brosnan likes to treat the ladies. <laughs> Meryl Streep got the same treatment in uh, Mamma Mia, outside the confines of SOS. <laughs> she needed an SOS. That's why that's their song. He gets a bit bitey in the bedroom. <laughs> I love Phil's expressions here. I wish he would put them into words for our podcast. We are technically recording this. Maybe there's a way to isolate it and post it to our channels, just Phil's response to that. <laughs> Let's talk a bit more about Carver, because one of the things that the Brosnan era does, which it's not really celebrated for, is find new types of enemy for Bond to go up against. It's not just, you know, Russia and, and the KGB or 
megalomaniacs. They are very specific targets in the Brosnan era. We've had techno-terrorism in GoldenEye. We move on to oil barons in The World Is Not Enough. And here, of course, we're looking at the idea of media moguls, a very powerful media barons being actually a threat to our freedom and to our liberty and our security. And it's an incredibly prescient film on that level. And, and it's only sort of retrospectively that, that we've come to see that and that a lot of the things it's talking about in terms of the influence of the press on governments and, and fake news and uh, I guess sort of, you know, the insidious way that those big press barons like the Rupert Murdochs and at the time like the Robert Maxwells were using their papers to kind of influence public opinion. Yeah, and of course, I think Jonathan Price plays it in a in a brilliant way as well. You know, that sort of the menace that he brings to that role, and and I do agree, Adam. I think that it's very um very telling of them, not just of that time, but certainly of, of the more modern era. And it's quite a dystopian idea that you know there's this media baron that can you know almost control the world's media, and he himself says that in his grand speech of his new opening of the Hamburg Centre that you know he wants world domination, but he doesn't want to use sort of weaponry. He wants to use media and newspapers and magazines to be able to control people's thoughts and, and ideas. I love Price's portrayal here. I think it's completely over the top, but I can forgive it because, as you say, Adam, the, the target are these real-life media moguls who do act very amorally at times, or most of the time. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, Price does amazingly well. I think uh, some of my favourite lines uh, are when he says the word delicious, when he's uh, discovering people have been killed, uh, and also maybe when he's uh, when he's having that big Zoom call with Michael G. Wilson and he just walks into the room and says, hello, my golden retrievers. But he says it in such a weird way. It's a lovely moment. Price is great at being this pompous, great showman who sells that madness, but also of being really ruthless. And he get, he goes into the subtle psychopathy of, I guess, the modern amoral CEO like that moment when he realizes Paris has betrayed him, he's incredibly cold about it. He immediately says, okay, a, an appointment with my wife and the doctor. He bumps her off immediately. It's, it's his own wife. And it's really hinting quite strongly at how a lot of those really nasty, you know, businessmen in the modern era, you know, operate in a sense. But yeah, you're right. Price's performance just absolutely nails that insanity and that sense of the great show off. Yeah, even in the small moments, like the the little t temper t tantrum that he has when Bond cuts the power to his speech, that one, I feel you, you get more of a sense of his, I know it is a bit of a caricature, but you get a real sense of what the character's about there. And also, again, in that great Zoom call, when he's sort of signing it off, he's almost breathless with excitement when he's going on about what he wants. I want news. I want TV. I want coverage 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's going properly awesome wells in Citizen Kane. Like, he almost can't get the words out because he's, he's working himself into such a froth over it. In the early scenes as well, when he's when they're um, attacking the Devonshire, you get that great shot of him just with his glasses, and it's that sort of the lighting on the back of them. You know that that really sinister look. He doesn't even say anything. You can just tell there's something not right about this. It's, you know, there's real evil here. While we've spoken about Carver, do we want to mention Stamper as well? Because he plays quite. A, we've already mentioned Kaufman, but Stamper is kind of he's the brawn to Carver's brains in this in many ways. Would we agree with that? Yeah, I'd agree with you, Phil, but I think for me, Stamp is a bit of a, a second-rate Red Grant or Necros. I'm, I'm not that impressed with him in this one. He, doesn't, he just kind of plods around, machine guns some people with a Chinese gun. Um, and I, I'm not particularly sold on the fact that he's a student of Kaufman. I think he's got better standards than that, to be honest. And uh, I didn't really like the, the ending where Bond takes Stamper out. And, uh, and Stamper, I think they've edited in some words for Stamper when he's got Bond against the railing. And he says, this is for Carver. Yeah, it's just kind of shoehorning in a ridiculous revenge bit that seems stupid. See, I find it quite threatening, actually. I think, he, I, I, I think that Stamper is a good addition because otherwise, how is, you know, obviously we've got Kaufman, but you, you kind of get the feeling that, you know, Carver kind of needs Stamper to do his dirty work for him almost because otherwise, how is... Carver going to be able to get these news stories out unless Stamper is helping him with the, you know, actually killing people. 
I think I'm probably closer to Martin on this one, if I'm being honest. I think what he lacks is any specific moments in the film where, where he comes across as properly dangerous or sinister or threatening. I mean, I guess the scene when he machine guns the surviving soldiers after the Devonshire's sunk is, is the closest he gets to showing that more sadistic side. But he doesn't really have any moments that, that Red Grant has in that we've already effectively seen him kill James Bond in the opening sequence. We've seen him take a knuckle duster to the chest and not even flinch. So for me, he's probably actually not um, a scion of Red Grant, but of Hans, German sort of Blofeld's uh, sort of hunky German blonde masseuse in a You Only Live Twice, who gets fed to the piranhas. That's, I think, where he's really coming from in terms of influences. Yeah, take out John Ketteringham, and then I'll take you seriously as a Bond villain. The late, great John Ketteringham. He needs to also like just beat up a piranha or like kill a shark like Jaws does. That's that's a sign of a really tough henchman. Or crush something with his bare hands that should not be crushable. That is the sign of a great henchman as well. Or in, in the storyline, I suppose it would have to be a stack of tomorrow newspapers, wouldn't he? If he can rip them all up in one go. <laughs> Tell you who is properly tough though, Waylin. How much do you love Waylin? I love a bit of Waylin. Yes, Michelle Yeoh as Waylin is really good in this film. I do agree. I think that she takes the Bond woman role and, and kind of really rolls and runs with it and, and you know really makes it her own. We see a Bond ally who is also very good at actually defending themselves and you know being able to actually fight for themselves. You know they're not really reliant on Bond that much. The scene in the secret base where she's been attacked by the um, the Chinese secret service. It's a great sequence. And I think, you know, Michelle Yeoh was a great choice for the for the role of Waylon. I think it is a great performance. Yeah, it's good to see another character similar to The Spy Who Loved Me with a, an, another fellow agent from a different country who is very much Bond's equal. Um, I guess she, she's one step behind Bond, naturally as it's his, his story. But uh, yeah, I think, and also the inclusion of the, the martial arts stuff and the, uh, the Kung Fu. In previous films, that's been quite ridiculous, really, and unnecessary. But this one actually makes sense, finally, with, uh, with the character. Yeah, you're right. It's a peak in terms of the Bond woman as the fellow secret agent, because, yeah, she, she's, if anything, more physically capable and, and a better fighter than Bond. But she's also, as a character, I, I love how sassy she is to Bond. I mean, she plays up the comedy and the sass of having to mount him on that bike really nicely. And she, you know, she doesn't just fall immediately for Bond. He has to work quite hard to seduce her. I think what's also great about um, their relationship coming full circle in a sense is, um, is how it's built uh, throughout that bike chase through uh, the streets of Saigon, which is, um, you know, the other great set piece in the film, which has that incredible helicopter jump stunt. But again, the extra element that they add into this, as well of making use of, uh, of Vietnam and Saigon and, and uh, you know, sort of making a boon of, of how rickety the architecture of those streets are and how tight and winding they are in terms of the driving stunts is also the, the fact that they're handcuffed and, and that they have to maneuver themselves around each other on the bike. It just, it's a gimmick, but it reveals their characters and their resourcefulness and that growing relationship and that building a sexual frisson in a sense, but also that respect for each other. There's the moments when Bond does things which rescue them and moments when it's Wei Lin who, who does the actions that save them. I was going to mention this in the actual Cars and Gadget sequence, but it's quite interesting some of the interplay as well, because Roger Spotterswood, before they shot the scenes uh, where Brosnan and Michelle Yeoh are both on the motorcycle, they actually he actually took both actors aside without the other one knowing and basically said to both of them, don't let the other person get on the bike first to ride it. So that's where you see that great little scene to start it saying, you know, I'm I'm riding this, but you know, it's that great little interplay between Bond and Wei Lint. One of the only only elements that kind of not lets it down, but obviously because of the dangers involved with jumping over a real helicopter, the way they put that sequence together was they used a full scale model of a helicopter that was attached with wires. It was um, two stunt performers, so it was Mark Southworth um, and Wendy Leach who performed the jump for real, but it was over a, um, I say, over a suspended model to reduce the risk of injury. Interestingly, though, um, apparently Michelle Yeoh, just to go back to it, apparently she did want to do all the stunts in the entire film, apparently, but due to the kind of insurance and, um, you know, the, the stunt team thinking that there would be too much risk to being injured, they kind of stuck to just doing the fight sequences. Yeah, I think it makes great use of the location. I'm not sure whether they... 
I think they filmed it in Thailand, so I, don't, I think they didn't get any permission from the Vietnamese authorities, but still it's a similar part of the world and you get a good sense of where they are. Probably the helicopter pilots and the, the gunmen need some more practice, dreadful aiming by them. Quite why they just stayed in position and didn't shoot Bond as he's riding the bike straight towards them, I'm not sure why. The best, the best bit about the helicopter sequence as well is the fact that obviously when the bike slides underneath it, you actually see the henchman aim the machine gun directly down at the motorbike and he doesn't shoot it. It's just so he could literally just shoot them both in the head as it slides underneath. Well, yeah, and I guess similar to the, the fact that Wei Lin could easily unpit the handcuffs before they start the chase. But if you go into that nitpicking detail, then you, do, you lose the specialness of the, the chase of them being tied together. Okay, so we'll now go over to the cars and gadgets section. So uh, I guess we've got quite a lot to talk about in this one. Over to you, Phil. Can you swim? Yes, thanks very much, Martin. So, obviously, again, this is the second of three films for BMW's partnership with the film franchise. This time, we've got a bit of a departure from the norm because for the first time ever, Bond is in um, an executive saloon. In this case, the 750 IL, or as Q refers to it, the 750, which is a bit of an unusual way to refer to it. When you consider that Bond was being, his cover was as a banker, um, yeah, you can believe that this is probably realistic for him to be driving around in a luxury saloon. So just to go through some of the gadgets that were featured in the film, the electrified door handles, um, the kind of the bulletproof glass smoke screen, um, obviously the remote driving mode through the mobile phone, the BMW badge with the micro buzzsaw, um, obviously the bulletproof body shell, and the glove compartment with the safe and the fingerprint IDs. Interestingly enough, this also has the self-inflating tyres, now, to achieve the effect of puncturing the tyres and then reinflating them, obviously they couldn't use um, real tyres. So they used an effect of actually having hydraulic rams within the, the body of the tyre wall, which would reinflate the tyre as it went over them. So this is a technique that's been used in films before, and it was actually to save them having to replace tyres and, and do multiple takes. This film is also quite interesting in the fact that this is probably the first time that Bond uses both a car and a motorbike from the same manufacturer. So obviously in their chase through Saigon, Bond and Waylin use the BMW R1200C. So this doesn't feature any gadgets, but it is used to great effect for them to escape on the narrow streets. Um, and again, we've already mentioned with the helicopter, the fact that the rotors were added in um, as CGI effects after the actual stunt took place. Just wanted to do a quick honorable mention as well to one that we haven't really touched upon, and that is Elliot Carver's stealth boat. Now, this is kind of seen as a little bit more fanciful, um, perhaps science fiction for many audiences, but there was some truth to the technology. In the 1980s, Lockheed built a prototype stealth boat nicknamed the Sea Shadow. So they built this for the US Navy, but on the grounds of costs and, you know, obviously being into peacetime, they didn't really see the need to have one. So the project was scrapped. Again, with the gadgets, this is um, in this one, there's much more of a step change to much more gadgetry. We've mentioned the use of mobile phones. Bond uses his Ericsson to great effect, partly to control the BMW, also to use in Elliot Carver's um, Hamburg offices, where he uses the, um, you know, the electric radio jammer to open the safe. Also, Bond uses to his advantage the lighter bomb at the very start, so he uses that to detonate one of the vehicles in the um, in the opening sequences. The other just really quick mention as well is this is the first time that Bond doesn't use a Walther PPK in the franchise. Walther had had a long running um, agreement with the Bond films and this time he uses the P99 in Wayland's um, kind of secret kind of Q branch you'd call it. Basically he finds the, uh, the P99, the brand new gun that Walther released that year. So these are kind of a really, really quick run through just some of the gadgets that are used in the film and, of course, the vehicles as well. Apparently, the sales of Walther, the real gun and the toy version skyrocketed after this film. They did, yeah. Apparently, this was a really, really popular addition for the Walther um, kind of 
product range, I guess you'd say. Interestingly enough, apparently BMW in the United States ran a very brief promotional offer where people, if they bought the BMW 750iL for a limited time, they also got the BMW motorcycle free as well in the bargain. So that was an American promotion that they did for a brief period of time in 1997. Okay, very good. So uh, we'll move on now to the next segment, which is Beyond the Book. So over to you, Adam. Cause the writing's on the Thank you very much, Martin. Well, as we've been talking Tomorrow Never Dies and newspapers, I thought we'd look at the relationship over the years between James Bond and the print media. Uh, and this is very important uh, because, of course, going way back, Ian Fleming began as a journalist before he was a novelist. Uh, his career started in 1931 when he became a sub-editor and journalist for Reuters after failing his exam to get into the Foreign Office. And during this time, he spent time in Stalin's Moscow, uh, but sadly gave up the position in 1933 to move into banking. He returns to journalism, though, after World War II, when in 1945, he becomes the foreign manager for the Sunday Times, uh, and he worked full time in that position until 1959, with the very important caveat that he got three months leave annually to go to Jamaica. And this is time for the, of course, users to write the James Bond novels. So the first uh, adaptation of Bond in newspapers is actually serializations of the books themselves in the Daily Express. Uh, and this begun with the fourth novel, Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, which was serialized from October 1956. Uh, and this was followed by From Russia With Love and Dr. No and Goldfinger in that newspaper. The next to be serialized was On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which was actually uh, serialized in Playboy magazine. And from that point on, uh, both uh, the final novels, You Only Live Twice and The Man With The Golden Gun were serialized in both Playboy and The Daily Express. Now, newspapers have an interesting relationship with specifically the novel From Russia With Love. At the time of its release, Anthony Eden, the then Prime Minister, was covered uh, quite extensively in the press visiting Fleming and Goldeneye, which hugely drove up sales of the novel. And of course, in Life magazine in 1961, an interview with then-President John F. Kennedy saw him named From Russia With Love as one of his ten favourite novels, which is felt to have played a huge role in that becoming the second James Bond film. Now, as well as serialising the novels, the Daily Express also transformed them into a series of comic strips from 1957. Uh, they paid Ian Fleming £1,500 per novel, plus a taking of the share of syndication rights. So they begin in 1958 with Casino Royale, which was written by Anthony Hearn. And then the illustrator John McCluskey and Henry Gamage's writer then adapt all the further novels in order up to You Only Live Twice, until 1966, when Jim Lawrence and Yaroslav Horak take over the writing and illustrating respectively to finish the short stories. But they also go on to create over 30 original comic strips of James Bond up until 1984. Those have since been collected in various volumes uh, released by Titan Books. We should also look very briefly at James Bond's life in comic books. He first appears in a comic in 1962 when a tie-in to Doctor No was produced by Classic Comics in the UK and DC Comics, no less, in the USA. And then 20 years later, no less than Marvel Comics uh, create two tie-ins for the films. They adapt For Your Eyes Only and Octopussy. Then in the early 90s, two new comic book series, original series, are released with James Bond uh, licensed as a character. The first is a series based on that TV series again, James Bond Jr., and the other is six original graphic novels by Dark Horse. And since then, uh, Dynamite Comics in 2014 have been creating two simultaneous series of books, one set in the period of the late 50s and the other a contemporary series of thrillers starring Bond. Uh, to briefly finish off, we uh, obviously have talked a little bit about uh, the newspaper critics and their thoughts uh, on the Bond films over the years. So I just wanted to finish by giving you an extract from Time Magazine's original 1962 review of Dr. No, in which they said, Agent Bond, in short, is just a great big hairy marshmallow but he sure does titillate the popular taste. In the past 10 years, the 10 novels in which he figures have sold more than 11 million copies in the US, and now at last, the varlet Pimpernel can be seen on the screen. He looks pretty good. A hairy marshmallow. I'm not, I don't even know what they mean by that. It got a few interesting reviews, Dr. No. Mixed was definitely the word. I think the Vatican reviewed it as well. Obviously, they didn't like it. Jonathan Price hadn't done the two popes by then. Oh, I'm sure he didn't, but he had to do that. I mean, he is the spitting image of uh, Pope Francis. So, you know, he always knew he said they were going to come at me with it at some point. So I might as well say yes. 
No, that, that was good stuff, Adam. I think uh, I'm glad that you're doing that segment. If uh, if I was doing it, it'd just be the video game. Uh, and also, I was going to mention, like, a, there was a screensaver. I don't know if you guys had it on the Windows 95 computer. You could get a screensaver of uh, Bond and Waylin going down the banner. It took me ages to find it on my dial-up. But then I eventually got it, and then I realized my screensaver is just it Jonathan Price's yeah. face <laughs> with his tiny figures going down the screen. <laughs> Very good. Oh, that's I do vaguely remember that. Yeah, okay, so we'll move on to our next segment now, which is Now I Know You. Now I Know You! Oh no. You're that secret agent! That English secret agent from England! This segment is where we look at some of the callbacks to previous films in the, the film that we're reviewing. Obviously today it's Tomorrow Never Dies. In terms of the plot, we could say that it's quite similar to You Only Live Twice and The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, in terms of we get a villain who's pitting two nations against one another. In those films, of course, it was the United States and the Soviet Union, whereas here we get Great Britain versus China. Uh, although, of course, Elliot Carver, not technically not trying to start World War III, is trying to bring it to the brink. Uh, then, of course, he gets the benefits of those 100 years broadcasting rights in China. Uh, also, we, this is the third and so far the final film to have Bond wearing his naval uniform, he was wearing it in those two other films as well, You Only Live Twice and The Spy Who Loved Me. We get the Stoke Park golf course. If you remember from Goldfinger, we get that beautiful setting, the outside, uh, and some of the inside scenes of the Atlantic Hotel are filmed in the hotel of the Stoke Park. Uh, we also get a link in terms of the naming of the characters. The original name for Elliot Carver was going to be Elliot Harmsway, but for some reason they changed it to Carver. And of course, we've had Carver before, Rosie Carver in Live and Let Die. And some, I thought some interesting callbacks to Dr. No, the first Bond film as well. Uh, if you remember, there's a scene between Connery's Bond and Dr. No, uh, where he tells Dr. No that the, our asylums are full of people who think they're Napoleon or God. Uh, and that links nicely with Carver's little speech that he gives to Waylon and Bond about him comparing himself to Napoleon and God. And uh, also the scene where Bond is waiting for uh, well, he thinks that he's waiting for some goons to come and kill him, but eventually it's uh, Paris Carver who comes to his hotel room. Stylistically, very similar to Bond waiting in the room, in the bedroom, if you remember in Dr. No, um, when he's waiting for his assassin, Professor Dent, to, uh, to turn up. Although he isn't playing solitaire in this one, which I found quite disappointing. And then uh, in terms of the locations, the Heilong Bay in Vietnam. So as I've mentioned, they couldn't film in Vietnam. So they ended up having to shoot around the islands of Thailand, which is why you might recognize that area looks very similar to Scaramanga's private island. Okay, so I think uh, those are some of my uh, favorite callbacks. Uh, or maybe, of course, the uh, stamper machine gunning everyone in the water brings back images of Walken going mental and uh, killing everyone in that mine. But uh, those are the ones that I found. I don't know if uh, you guys, did you have uh, any others or any favourites? Yeah, I've nothing else to add, really. Apart than to say, actually, in the Bond films, pretty much all the characters who are really good at classic kung fu karate style action are, are female. Obviously, Wei Lin in this film, and of course, uh, is it um, Inspector Yip's nieces in um, The Man with the Golden Gun, who seem able to take out that entire dojo of, of presumably not very good uh, assassins. <laughs> Okay, so we'll go over now to Q-Branch. What questions do we have from our cubbies, Phil? Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. So one from Facebook from, from Gareth Rogers. Um, it actually, for the three of us, looks at the kind of when we watch the films. Do we prefer to sort of watch them with other people around us? Do you kind of watch them on your own? Or do you prefer to have sort of people with you to kind of enjoy the experiences I always grew up with my dad watching them and yeah that was a really great experience but I don't know do you guys sort of do you prefer it as sort of a an individual experience or do you like to share it with others? Well personally I'd say I don't really know anyone who's apart from you guys who's a bigger Bond fan as I am so if they're watching it with me they'll probably be talking and distracting me from what's happening so I'm quite annoyed by that but I don't know I'd be quite interested to, when I finally meet up with you guys face to face 
I'd like to uh, maybe watch one or two of them together. Uh, it should be more amusing, I feel, now that we've gone through all of them. Yeah, we haven't watched that many, just all of us together. I mean, and, and when we do, we tend to go for Roger Moore, which, which is partly why we, we, we called ourselves Roger Moore's Cubbyhole. Yeah, I always prefer watching them with other people when I can. Uh, but, but I think the beauty of them is I can just sit on my own and watch them and, and, you know, I can just sort of get lost in it for a couple of hours. But for sure, I think all films benefit from the communal watching experience, which is why, obviously, as soon as we can get no time to die in the cinemas and, and people obviously distance within them, enjoying it together, we'll, uh, we'll all be uh, in a much better place. OK, very good. And the next question is from Twitter. So in terms of locations... Where should Bond's next mission take him? So where would you like to see Bond go next? Kansas. Because why not? I, I think that's sort of you were talking before about no one ever launches a, a scheme for world domination from Milton Keynes or Coventry. And I, I think Kansas is very much the Milton Keynes of America. I'd probably go, following on from your ideas in our previous episode, Phil, I'd have uh, Elon Musk, or Elon Musk, as you called him, kind of Moonraker style on Mars, perhaps. Or what you could do, actually, is send Bond to New Zealand for the most chill, laid-back Bond film of all time. Oh, mate, there's not much going on here. We're just eating chips. Okay, so thanks, guys. So that was our Q branch for this week. So as ever, do please keep sending in your questions, suggestions, and fan theories. We do love to hear from you. Okay, so that brings us nicely to our final part, which is the quiz. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! It's over to Phil. What do we have this week, Phil? Oh, this week it's a treat, Martin. So again, it's going to go back to the quickfire um, penalty shootout style. But this week the quiz is called Tomorrow Never Lies. So this is basically just a true or false round, uh, best out of six each. So, Adam, as you are alphabetically, you are the first in line. Would you like to go first or second? Yeah, I'll go in first. Okay, so start the quiz off, Adam. Question one. Pierce Brosnan keeps chickens. Is that true or false? That, that's the question, is it? Yeah. Pierce Brosnan, does he keep chickens or not? True. It is true. In a recent interview he did with GQ magazine, he does keep chickens Martin, your first question. So Ace of Base were originally signed to do the cover song for this film. Well, I know there were quite a lot of people who were vying to do it, but I'll go false. You're right. They were actually did a song for the last film, GoldenEye, but the record label dropped it because they didn't think it would be commercially successful. So you're one each. So Adam, your second question. Jonathan Price was born in 1947. So on the basis that I'd make him around 73 now, I'll say true. Correct. He is 73. He was born in 1947. So that's two for Adam. Martin, halo jump stands for high altitude, low opening jump. I'll go false. It was true. It does stand for high altitude, low opening, because obviously that was in the film where Bond has to jump from the jet to find the Devonshire ship. So, Adam, your third question to take the lead. Terry Hatcher was considered for a Bond TV spin-off series. Uh, false, I'd say. Correct, yes, there was never any suggestion of a Bond TV spin-off series. It'd be very hard to have Paris uh, Carver in a TV spin-off series, being that she is dead. Well, yes, true. I did think that one was a little bit easier. Okay, so Martin, question three. Michelle Yeoh did all her own stunts. I mean, she wanted to, but I don't think she did all of them, so I'll go false. Correct. Yes, you're right. She only did the fight scene. So as we mentioned in the podcast, she was desperate to do every single fight stunt, but uh, every single stunt, but the uh, the production team said no. So it's now Adam leads by Phil, one. Phil you're, Phil, you're the one who told us that in the podcast. You're literally giving away your own answers. At least, hang on. Right, right. Anyway, question four. Question four for Adam. So the actor, Ricky Jay, who played Henry Gupta, was also an acclaimed uh, magician. Uh, yeah, that's true. Correct, yeah. So that's four out of four for Adam. So Martin, your fourth question. The original title for this film was Tomorrow Never Lies. True. Correct, yes. Yeah. So that's... So, Adam, your fifth question. Anthony Hopkins was originally cast as Elliot Carver. Okay, this, this is tricky. Obviously, you can see him doing it. I know that he was in line, actually, for Trevelyan in Goldeneye. 
and uh, before they made the character a lot younger. So I'm going to think that that's where you got Hopkins from, and therefore I'm going to go false. It's actually true. He was also considered for Tomorrow Never Dies, but with the number of rewrites and um, because they couldn't guarantee Martin Campbell would return for the film, he actually turned it down. Martin, your fifth question. Elliot Carver is based on the life and times of media mogul Robert Maxwell. Well, that one's true as well. Well, no, it's false because they only do a tongue-in-cheek reference to him. But no, is... Phil, I'm sorry, that is true. Firestein specifically said he was inspired by Robert Maxwell. All right, I'll give you that one, then I'll say it's true. Phil, all of Martin's questions so far have either been mentioned by us in the podcast or are said in the film itself. I've been getting, is him Ricky Jay a magician? Did Pierce Brosnan keep chickens? <laughs> the age of Jonathan Price. <laughs> How old's Jonathan Price? I mean, what, what is this? <laughs> right, the original script had Robbie Coltrane returning as Valentin Zukovsky. Adam, that's for you. Um, I'll say false. It was true, the rewrite actually left him out, so he returned for The World Is Not Enough, so that was true. Martin, your final question. We've already mentioned in the film that there are a lot of cameos from people who would go on to become future stars, but Natasha Kaplinsky, the newsreader, also features in the Hamburg offices when Bond infiltrates them. Is that true or false? Seems like a random person to say if she's not in it. No, I'll go false. It is false. Yes, she wasn't in it at all. So, Martin, you with that, you win the quiz this week. Delicious. Luckily for Adam, I think I'm going to pick something that he would have chosen as well. We've got a tradition of choosing Bond villain songs, and Jonathan Price was in Miss Saigon in the 1989 run in the West End, and it fits nicely with the location of this film as well. So uh, let's have The Heat Is On in Saigon. I'm very pleased you picked that, because he's actually playing a Vietnamese pimp in Miss Saigon. But I was also going to choose something from Miss Saigon, so I'm pleased it's in there. Okay, very good. So that brings us to a close for this episode. Next week, we'll be back with Brosnan's third Bond film, The World Is Not Enough, or Twine for short. So I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. In the meantime, do check out our social media pages, of course, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Do like and follow along. We've introduced some, uh, some nice little highlight clips of our episodes, which you'll be able to find each weekday. Uh, so hopefully those will keep you entertained. So uh, thanks, everyone. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. I'm just a professional doing a chop.